Uh, one of the most anxiety-ridden times of Jesus' life was the night before his death. Uh, you know, Jesus knew full well what was coming, and, you know, he went off to fortify himself in prayer. And he brought with him Peter, James, and John, kind of the, the inner three of the group of twelve. And they went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus asked them to keep watch, right, to lift him up in prayer in this emotionally tumultuous time. Now, three different times in this scene, Jesus went off on his own to pray, right? Asking God, you're probably familiar with the, the, the passage, asking God, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Take this cup of suffering off of my plate. And each time after a segment, a time of prayer, Jesus returned to the three disciples only to find them sleeping. Jesus' response is he rebukes them. These are supposed to be some of his closest friends, but they couldn't even stay awake for an hour while his stress literally hit a point where he is literally sweating drops of blood. Now, the text in the passage says that their eyes were heavy. And I don't know about you, but I can relate to these disciples. When we are physically exhausted, when we're emotionally drained, even if we're just plain sleep deprived, sleep is one of those things that is so easy to fall into, even when we don't want to. I remember in college sitting in some of my chemical engineering lectures in college, and the content wasn't the most stimulating, uh, and the, the monotone voice of the professor just kind of lulled me into a daze, and I would fight so hard, you know, tr- physically trying to keep my eyes open, you know, pinching myself or smacking myself in the face a little bit, just to kind of give me that jolt, give me that boost. I knew that the material was important. It was stuff that I should have been learning, but that urge to fight sleep was so difficult. But there are seasons in our life that it is essential that we fight the urge to sleep. It's outright dangerous to get behind the wheel of a car while you're nodding in and out of sleep. If you're a soldier and it is your responsibility to have first watch and keep an eye out for intruders, if you fall asleep, you not only put yourself in danger, but also your brothers and sisters in arms. Similarly, there are elements of our faith where we must remain vigilant, focused, what the Bible calls being alert or awake. We've been going through a sermon series looking at Jesus' words to seven different churches in modern-day Turkey. And even though our church, with the church, we're going to look at the church of Sardis this morning, even though our churches are separated by about 2,000 years, there is much that we can learn from Jesus' words to these churches. This morning as we look at the church of Sardis, we're going to see that they have fallen asleep at an inopportune time, and Jesus summons a sleeping church to wake up, to wake up and to live out their calling that God has placed on them in the world. So if you would pull out your Bibles or Bible apps, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is the fifth church that we've looked at, and again, this is the map that we've used. There's Turkey, and you can see the the cities a little close up. So started at Ephesus, Ephesus, moved north, and now we've kind of been making our way back southeast to Sardis. And so we're going to listen to the, the words of comfort, the words of criticism, the commendations that come from this church in Sardis. So if you would follow along with me as I read, this is Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. 
And to the angel in the church of Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Excuse me. Let's quickly go through the, the elements of the letter. So first we have the greeting, where Jesus identifies himself. And here he is describing himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And this language is similar to what we saw in the very first letter of Ephesus. If you want to flip back, it's just the start of chapter 2. There Jesus says that he has the seven stars in his hand and he walks among the seven lampstands. Right? Both of these descriptors, whether it be the stars, the spirits, the lampstands, they are meant to display and demonstrate his authority. Seven was considered, especially in the Hebrew tradition, the number of perfection, that number of fullness. Right? Creation right? has seven days. There's a completeness to it. Now, chapter 1 in Revelation tells us that the stars are symbolic of angels, these messengers that go to the seven churches that are depicted. Now, what are the seven spirits of God? It's likely a reference to the Holy Spirit. But if there's one spirit, right, if there's one Holy Spirit, why is he described in seven different ways? Well, again, if we kind of use the Bible to interpret itself, if we look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, we see the Spirit of God there described, uh, broken into these seven different characteristics or facets. So that might be what Jesus is harping on. Uh, here are the seven that are listed there. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Wisdom, the Spirit of Understanding, the Spirit of Counsel, the Spirit of Power, the Spirit of Knowledge, and the Spirit of the Fear of the Lord. Right? This completeness of the Holy Spirit is in possession, as we see in Revelation 3 in our, our verse, is in the possession of Jesus. I think once again it shows his authority, his hierarchical role, and his ability to dispense the Holy Spirit to his people. Now let's move to the commendations of Jesus. He tells them, it's very, very short if you can even call it a commendation. He says that he knows their works, that they have a reputation for their life. But in the same breath, Jesus admonishes of them that actually they're dead. And we're going to get to that in a moment. Now, if we, we read this, if, if you've been tracking with us for the last four weeks, something very interesting is absent from our passage. There is no mention of persecution from the text. Right? If you hold this letter side by side with the other ones that we've seen up until this point, I think that's pretty significant. Because over the last four weeks, I've been sharing with you elements of the persecution of, that Christians faced across the Roman Empire. 
And it's quite possible that Sardis proved to be a haven of religious freedom in the empire because Sardis had a, a pretty sophisticated form of paganism, and so it is quite possible that this was a, a, a genuinely pluralistic society where Jews and Christians both had security in their faith. Right? There was tolerance of their differing worldview. You know, archaeology shows us that there was a large Jewish community in the city. Right? Uh, Josephus, who was one of the earliest historians in this first century AD, he was a Jewish historian, and he wrote about the, the Jewish community in Sardis. But in addition to that, there was an enormous synagogue in the city. Right? The, the, the length of it, roughly, was the, the length of a football field. So we're talking like 100-yard, 300-foot synagogue in here. It was one of the largest synagogues in antiquity. And next to that, right, directly adjacent to that, was a gymnasium, which a gymnasium, again, it wasn't quite the same way that we understand what a gym is, but it was one of the, the centers of Greek pagan culture existing side by side with one another. Now, it's quite possible that the Christians were able in the city to live at peace with both the Jewish community and their pagan neighbors. And so I would argue, I would suggest that Sardis, for the Christians, was a place of comfort. There was no real price for them to pay for their faith. And it's possible that they, that may have lulled them into a false sense of security. What, I, what I'm going to suggest that Jesus labels as them falling asleep. So let's turn to his critique. Right, he calls them dead. But given the context of his rebuke, to wake up, right, the Christians in Sardis could be considered sleeping. They were oblivious to the world. And so Jesus summons this sleeping church to wake up. Now I want to point out the contrast that is inferred from the statement of Jesus because his experience, the experience of Jesus directly contrasts the challenges and, ch and challenges, excuse me, the Christians at Sardis. Because Jesus was the one who was dead, but is not dead any longer, is now alive. We saw that explicitly stated, Revelation 2, verse 8, Jesus' words to Smyrna, that he, he contrasts, he says that I was the one who was dead, but am now alive. But the church in Sardis, by contrast, think that they are alive. What's more, there's this reputation that's been carved out for themselves. The word reputation literally means fame, right? They are famous for their thriving. But Jesus says, you think, you, this is what you think is true, but what's actually true is the opposite. And if they won't wake from their slumber, Jesus promises that he will come to them like a thief. Now, this is language that we've seen, if we've read through the Gospels before, both in Matthew and Luke, Jesus describes the suddenness of the second coming, when Jesus will return, that it will be like a thief arriving in the middle of the night. He says that if the master of the house knew what time the thief was coming, right, he'd stay up, he'd be awake, his security system would be poised and ready to strike. But that's not how a thief acts. A thief doesn't announce their presence. A thief is meant to arrive when you least expect it. Right? The application that Jesus gives in light of this passage in both Matthew and Luke is be on your guard, be vigilant, be ready at every hour. In, the, in this episode, the NIV translates that the master of the house should keep watch, but the root word literally means, again, in the Greek, stay awake. Don't go to sleep because they're coming. 
Now, this had some pretty relevant context to the city of Sardis, because one of the characteristics of Sardis is that it had had a reputation to have never been conquered through outright battle. Now, I don't know if that was because of their military strength. I don't know if it was the topography that gave them that advantage. But they hadn't been outright conquered in battle. But there were two exceptions to that. Twice, the city was unexpectedly overtaken because they failed to adequately keep watch. They were overconfident as a city, and it left them vulnerable. Not once, but twice, invaders were able to breach their defenses. Now, given that historical setting, I'd be willing to bet that the Christians completely perked up at at the words that Jesus gave to them, right? Because they did not want to make the same mistake again. They had two strikes on them. They didn't want a third strike. That embarrassment was a part of their church history, and they didn't want it to be their downfall as well. And so I imagine this this language of stay awake was a jolt. It was kind of a shot of espresso in their, uh, their system to jog them out of this drowsy stupor. Now, if the believers are able, just continuing with his words of comfort, if the believers are able to wake themselves up, Jesus says this, that the one who overcomes would be clothed in garments of white, and would not have their name blotted out of the book of life. These white clothes in antiquity was a symbol of purity in culture. Even in paganism, right? You you wouldn't dare to approach a deity in dirty clothes. This was a culture that didn't have automatic laundry machines. You 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 didn't have OxyClean to get out those hard-to-tackle stains. If you're working on the farm, you get some grass stain, you get some animal excrement on you, you're not, you're not getting those out. And so you reserved your best-looking, your blemish-free, most likely your newest clothing, right, kind of the Sunday best, if you will, for when you intended to be in the presence of a divine being. Right? This promise of comfort is kind of like an object lesson for them. Right? This is for believers, Jesus says, who have not soiled their clothes. In our small group, we've been reading through the the letter of James. And James calls believers at the end of chapter 1 to engage in pure religion. And that pure religion prevents one from being stained. The NIV says polluted by the world. And so Jesus' promise here is that by staying awake, by staying vigilant, by caring for our spiritual health, it allows us to prevent the brokenness of the world from rubbing off on us. It doesn't mean don't be in the world, but it kind of puts that like, you know, if you ever have a, a, a new pair of sneakers, right? You get, you get some Jordans and you want them to keep really well, and you can buy, you know, you can buy that sealant at the shoe store that you can put over your shoe to keep it, to waterproof it, to keep the stains from getting on it. And, and I think what, what Jesus is saying is if you, you can preserve yourself so that the world doesn't rub off on you so that you can be blemish-free, right? That our true spiritual state will be recognized in a physical reality of being clothed in these white, these pure, these blemish-free garments. If we look at what Jesus says later in the book of Revelation, this is 16, 15, he says, behold, I am coming like a thief. There's that language again. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So not only do we have that same language of a thief, but the result, if we are found unprepared that you're going to go about naked, it's 
Now, this isn't Jesus trying to form a nudist colony, but again, the lack of clothing is an object lesson, right? What is true physically reveals something that's going on spiritually, that there is no garment that will hide that will cover our blemishes if we're not ready. Lastly, he says, if, if, we are, if we are ready, the one who overcomes, that he will not blot out their name in the book of life. Now, this concept of having your name written in a book of life, being rooted with eternal salvation, is, is, it's rooted in the entire biblical narrative. After the golden calf incident, when God wanted to punish the people, Moses basically says, if you're not willing to forgive them, then blot out my name on your list as well. You have the Psalms, you have the prophetic literature of Daniel, even Jesus who describes this context of, of you want to have, right? It's desirous to have your name in the book of life. But what does it mean to have your name blotted out? Now, the original audience probably heard this in the context of uh, the, the, the registers of Roman citizenship. If you were a Roman citizen, your name was recorded on a master list. I don't know, maybe it was in Rome, maybe each city had it. I'm not exactly sure how it worked, but there were these registers. And there were ways that you could lose your citizenship. If you deserted from the army, maybe you cooked your book so that you didn't have to pay taxes. Basically, any violation of the standard of Rome, which revealed a lack of loyalty to the state, you could lose that privilege. So trying to translate, the passage seems to indicate that if you violate the standards of God in a way that shows you to be a traitor to him, you could lose out on that citizenship to heaven. That's what the, the text seems to imp implicate. Now that brings up a huge question about whether or not you can lose your salvation. And I, I'm going to address it not satisfactorily, but I'm going to try to address that in a minute. So let's kind of take a step back from this passage and see what are the lessons that we can learn. How ought our life be different in the 21st century because of this? And I have two primary avenues of application that I want us to consider. First, what did it mean for the church of Sardis to wake up? So what does that mean for us today? And then secondly, the, this question I just raised a moment ago, are we able to lose our salvation? So first, the call to wake up, I think, is really important for us, given our present circumstances, just as much as it was to the original hearers of Sardis. Because for the last four weeks, each week I have stood up here and I've shared about these churches that are being persecuted for their faith. The Christians are literally being put to death because of being a Christian. They were being arrested, they were beaten, killed. But that is outside of our experience in American culture. Now, there are places in the world where that is true for the church, that there is fierce persecution in other places. But when we try in an American, 21st century American context to apply that to our lives, we've had to think about it in other channels, whether it be kind of, uh, you know, hypothesizing, imagining what would it be like, or finding other ways that we can showcase our faithfulness to God. But here in Sardis, what we experience, what we encounter, is a church that had been lulled to sleep because of their comfort, because of their security. In general, they had a low-cost context for their faith, and I would argue that that's what's true of us. We exist in a setting where we have a pretty low cost. It doesn't mean there's, it's without cost. 
you might have scrutiny, but it's pretty low cost compared to being arrested, beaten, or killed. We, like Sardis, enjoy comfort and security. And these are blessings of God that we should celebrate. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pursue them, but I think it's important to be aware of the slippery slope that they can lead us down. One of the church fathers from the first couple of centuries was uh, the name Tertullian. I think Tertullian is the guy that coined the, the word Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I think. That's an aside. But one of the famous quotes that comes from him, he said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Right? The blood of the martyrs, those who suffered and died, was the very force that kind of kept the church flourishing, growing. That constant threat preserved a genuine faith. Right? You, you weren't half in it if you knew that any second someone could be knocking at your door. You were in it to win it. Right? That, that, that uh, display of faithful disciples who, who stayed steadfast, who persevered to the point of death, to the graves, was an inspiration for others around them as well. So that all kind of, even though it was a really hard time to be a Christian, there was flourishing in the church. But what do you do when that threat ceases? You could sit back, you can rest on your laurels. Now what can happen is if we aren't careful, is that we start to find ourselves more and more guided by kind of the, that cordial culture around us, more so than the voice of Jesus. It's like the retired athlete who was once at peak physical fitness levels, peak, peak physical conditioning, but then they retire and that need to stay prepared for the competition goes away. And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes what can happen is so do the dis disciplines that kept her at her peak. In John 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. And he describes us as his sheep. And as his sheep, we know his voice, that we follow that voice. The text says that we don't follow strangers because we don't recognize their voice. So my first question to you is how do you hear the voice of Jesus? How have you discerned whether the things that are vying for your attention come from him or come from strangers. I think a great example of this in the last century was the rise of Adolf Hitler and Nazism. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who saw Nazism for what it was, and he did everything in his power to fight against it from within Germany. In fact, he, he, he was even part of a plot that attempted to assassinate Hitler. And he was martyred. He was killed for his staunch faith, a faith that refused to bend the knee to the state in this kind of fascist regime. But unfortunately, Bonhoeffer was fighting an uphill battle because the state church of Germany was very enamored with Hitler and even the racist ideologies that he brought because they had grown comfortable they were allured by the potential of national or political power that, that Hitler and, and, and kind of that, that Third Reich presented. They were more enamored with that than they were about doing the right thing or following the, the, the voice of Jesus. 
Right? They were a, a church asleep, and Bonhoeffer tried to rouse them unsuccessfully. In a slumbering church like the one in Sardis, it's quite possible that you're not going to have roadblock after roadblock. In truth, Satan didn't need to put pressure on them. He didn't need to put persecution. He didn't need to bring all these false teachers because they're already asleep. They were no threat to his agenda. And so at times, sometimes, again, not always, I'm not trying to make sweeping statements, but there are times that when we're in the right path, that's when the enemy throws these roadblocks in our ways. Again, it's not, I'm not trying to make a conditional you know, formula for that. Just because you're suffering doesn't mean that you're on the right path. Sometimes we're suffering because we go down the wrong path and God lets us go down that path and reap those natural consequences anyway. So enough about that. What we are supposed to gain from this is that it's imperative that we stay awake, that we are ready, that we are watchful for the direction of Jesus Christ, listening to his voice. Right, a few moments ago, I used the example of an athlete. An athlete in peak physical condition is not there by accident, right? but because she trains tirelessly to be the best. For the last number of Summer Olympics in a row, we saw swimmer Katie Ledecky absolutely demolish the competition. And I could tell you with confidence, I don't know her, but I could feel pretty confident about these statements, that she didn't get there by turning her alarm off in the early morning when she ought to have gone to training. She didn't, she didn't you know, deviate from her nutrient-packed diet. Even when she felt twinges of discomfort or when her lungs were, breathing, or were burning, excuse me, because she wanted to breathe, she didn't give up. You know, you look at something like Katie Ledecky's training plan and then consider your own spiritual training plan. Now, I'm, I'm not out to make anyone feel guilty. Lord knows that I fail at this regularly as well. But being watchful, being vigilant is about giving time of training to our bodies, to our minds, to our spirits, our souls, in the discipline of the Lord. Whether that be regular times of prayer or Bible reading, confession and repentance, worship, fellowship, right? There's so many avenues that we can pursue this. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Just tangentially, I, I think these spiritual disciplines are so important that I think that perhaps the beginning of 2023, I'm going to do a series on spiritual disciplines. And I hope it can be a time that we can practice them together, like a case study. We'll talk about one, and then let's find ways to put it into practice. I don't know. If, I don't know if you like that idea or not. Let me know. But it's imperative that we stay awake because the consequences of not staying awake in this text are tragic. Jesus says that our names will be blotted out of the book of life. So the elephant in the room is, does that mean that we can lose our salvation? Now, my response historically to that question has always been no. I, I don't think we lose salvation based on the theological tradition that I come from. But I want to acknowledge in saying that that the scriptures do not give us the benefit of a clear-cut negation. Because the Bible simultaneously uses language that seems to indicate that if you wander away from God, you lose the benefits of the kingdom and therefore salvation, while at the same time highlighting the steadfast nature of Jesus, that even if we deny him, he's never going to deny us. Right? There's a tension there that the scripture realizes, 
And so to try to dig into that would be a sermon in and of itself. I don't know if that's something you're interested in. Maybe submit it. Yeah, we, we could talk about it. Maybe our next Q&A Sunday. But I want to share with you two historic figures in the church that landed on different sides of the aisle as it pertains to this. Jacob Arminius and John Calvin. Now, Arminius, his his, um, theological traditions are not quite as popular today, but he said yes, he believed that you could lose salvation. That apostasy, apostasy is a word that is used to describe like a renunciation, a wandering away from faith. He would say that apostasy can reverse the results of salvation. Now, Calvin, on the other hand, said that no, you could not lose your salvation. He stated that apostasy, right, is someone who who, uh, walked away from their faith, was just someone who appeared to be a follower of Jesus, but never were actually converted. Does that make sense? So if you walk away from your faith, Calvin would argue, you don't have salvation, but it's because you were never actually saved to begin with. Again, both of them have, have some troubles. You know, this doctrine of Calvin in particular is called perseverance of the saints, and unfortunately it is often shorthand described as once saved, always saved. And I think one of the real unfortunate elements is that we're giving people this this, uh, uh, belief, this uh, concreteness that it's like, you know what, if I prayed the sinner's prayer once, you know, 25 years ago, haven't been to church since, but 25 years ago, that I'm fine. I just said these words on a page or repeated after someone, and there's no, you know, no issue. I'm good. I think there's some, some things that are problematic with that. But what I want us to see and acknowledge in both of these two perspectives of Arminius and Calvin is that the end result of both of them is the same. Because they would both argue that walking away from God meant that salvation was of no benefit to us. One of them suggested that it was a benefit we could lose, but the other said if we walk away, it's a benefit we never had in the first place. And so perseverance, standing strong, going through to the end in our faith is critical in our conversation. When we encounter a passage like this, we need to see it as a serious warning to those with nominal faith. I said this a few weeks ago, but the purposes of the Scriptures, the purposes of preaching, is to comfort the afflicted, but to afflict the comfortable. And so if we're feeling comforted right now, or if we're feeling comfortable, there might be a little bit of affliction that we need to take to acknowledge that perhaps we're not living our lives the way that we ought. Some conviction from the Holy Spirit. Because this is not something that you just accidentally start doing. It takes intentionality. And so as we prepare, you know, as we we get ready to close out here, walk through the sanctuary doors, I'm going to give you some reflection questions. Again, I'll post them as I do every week. I try to Mondays, but sometimes don't get to it until Tuesdays. Uh, Post these reflection questions so that you can follow through with them, right? That it may be that, you know, that shot of espresso reinvigorating our lives, our faith in the Spirit and, and goodness of God. So here we go. Talking about listening to the voice of Jesus. How do you cut through the noise? Because there's a lot of noise all vying for our attention. How do we cut through that and hear, listen to the voice of Jesus? Secondly is this. What spiritual discipline should you start practicing this week? Right? This is like going to the gym. This is like trying to eat a healthier diet, you know, lifestyle change. We fall off the wagon all the time. 
You know, you, you find kind of like, oh, I don't feel like going to the gym today, and then oh, I don't feel like going tomorrow, and it's a slippery slope. Or, you know, I, I'm not going to be careful about what I eat, so I'm going to not worry about it today. And then it just, it kind of builds on itself. You, you know how that goes. Spiritual disciplines are no different, right? We, we might have had this really robust faith or robust relationship with God, and then, you know, things got busy. You know, school year started. Well, now's a great time to like think, what, are those, what is one discipline that you want to reintroduce back into your life? Get back on that, that wagon, or the horse, I guess is the metaphor. And lastly, and this is kind of similar, what habits? Maybe there's other habits that aren't specifically spiritual disciplines, but what habits do we need to put in place to run the marathon of faith to the end? That's, what, that's how Paul describes faith as a marathon. I have not run a marathon, I have not run a half marathon, I've run a quarter of a marathon before, right? But it's, it takes endurance, it takes training, it takes pacing, it's not a sprint. The life of faith was never meant to be just something that you just hit full bore for, you know, a couple years. But it's to be stretched out over the process of our lifetime. So what habits do we need to have in place so that we can f- hold fast, persevere to the end? Let's join together in prayer. Lord, may we be reinvigorated by you. God, there are probably places in our lives and our faith and our relationships we're sleeping right now. So God, I pray that you would bring to mind, even now in this space, those spaces that we can experience your revival, that we can be awake and alert. Lord, that we can hold our hands to the tasks that you have put us towards, not of our own power, but always relying on your grace and strength. Lord, we love you. Wake us up to honor you and worship. Amen.